Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as, quote, any want, that means lack, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And that is a very good definition. But if we were to put it in terms maybe more familiar to us today, we could just say sin is any time you do what God doesn't want you to do. God has revealed His will. That's what God wants us to do. It's His will. It's here in the Scriptures. He has, of course, a secret counsel by which He governs all things in the world. You don't know that. I don't know that. That's none of our business. What we know is His, what we call, revealed will. What God has revealed in the Scriptures. How He wants you to live your life and all of His creatures to live their lives. It is a good, acceptable, and a perfect will. We know it even from the time of birth. We have a sense of this perfect will by conscience, even apart from the Scriptures. But then when the Bible comes in and we read the Bible and hear its message, then what we vaguely understand in our consciences becomes crystal clear. This is what God wants of our life in every area of our life. Sin is when you live out of sync with that. Now, this is a simple enough definition, but we do have to say it. We have to say it, the definition of sin, and we have to even say the word sin because you know that that word is fairly taboo in our times. It's not always been that way in the broader culture. Sometimes it's been overplayed, but in the day in which we live, sin is taboo. We don't talk about sin. We talk about it here because we're at church and you expect that. But for example, if there is, let's just pick something, an armed robbery that takes place, you're going to hear, here in town, you're going to hear about that armed robbery by a variety of different descriptions. So legally, you're going to hear that a criminal committed a felony. It's one way to talk about it, and it's true. In reportage, a young male entered and robbed a convenience store. True enough. If a psychologist is consulted, then the description might have something to do with this is acting out against a background of childhood trauma. Maybe so. You turn off the news and you talk to your neighbors about the same event, and they'll have a variety of ways of describing the armed robbery. Maybe those more sympathetic to the plight of the man will say someone in a desperate situation is trying to get out of the system and upgrade their lives. Those less sympathetic will say a thug is ruining our community. All kinds of descriptions of the same event. But you know what you will not hear. You will not hear it on the news. You will not hear it from your neighbors. You probably will not say it yourself. He sinned. That man sinned. But it's not the language of today. In fact, even saying that, if you were to tell that to your neighbor, you would sound like some leftover of a puritanical past. Who talks like that? Sinned. So we have to say it. You know why we have to say it? Because although nobody else talks like that, 
Jesus talks a lot like that all throughout the Gospels. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. This adulterous and sinful generation. If you lost your temper at your children coming to church today, whatever your excuse is, you sinned. Or at your spouse, you sinned. If you walked into this church and you saw someone else in your mind in a lesser status or condition than you and that gave you some tinge of pleasure, you sinned. If you right now are stewing with a degree of bitterness in your heart towards someone in this room, don't look at them, that's embarrassing, but towards someone in this room, you are sinning, sinning, S-I-N, that's the word, sin, sin, sin. We're saying the word. We're saying the word. Sinning. There are other descriptions of the events. There are other factors that come into play. Sure, yes, but the way Scripture speaks, and especially the way it speaks to us in Galatians today, is crystal clear, simplified down to its essence. It's sin. Sin is sin. No excuse. No conditioning of it. Paul is going to speak of works of the flesh. He means sin. That's what we're talking about today. The reason it's important for us to talk about sin is not so we can become dour and upset at everybody in the world and everything. No, no, no. Let's not do that. The reason we need to talk about sin is because it helps us to speak with reality. Because sin is really what's happening. So if you don't talk about sin, it's still sin. So we're trying to speak in keeping with what's really going on in myself in the world around me, it's sin. Secondly, if we eliminate the language and the concept of sin, then you lose the gospel because the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is ultimately that you can be saved from your sin. And if you get to the place where you go, I don't even know what sin is. I don't use that language. I don't think that way. You've got nothing to be saved from. Not by Jesus. He came to save from sin. Paul is going to offer us in this letter to the Galatians today a list of 15 sins. Are they also crimes? Some of them. Are they also psychological disorders? Maybe, depending what you mean by that. Are they errors, failures, faults, and slip-ups? Kind of. But we're not going to call them that today. We're going to call them sins or works of the flesh. So let's see that here in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh, these are sins, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, 
orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We saw last week in the text that according to Paul, every one of you who knows Christ has a conflict, a war that is taking place inside you. It's the most important of all the wars in the world through all time. It is a war between your flesh, which is simply a way of speaking of those sins that are still in you, even as a believer. It's your flesh, and it is at war against the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, who indwells you as a believer. The Spirit is within you as a believer, but you also have the flesh. You have sin remaining in there, so what is going to happen when you put fire next to dynamite? Fireworks. <laughs> There's going to be conflict, so we've seen that. And now what Paul is doing is he wants to take it from the abstract into something very concrete. And so today and next week, he's going to give us a list of what it looks like when the flesh is winning in your life. In other words, the works of the flesh or sin. And then next week, he's going to give us the better known list of what it looks like when the Spirit is winning in your life. Love, joy, peace, and the rest. But he starts here with the works of the flesh. So how do you know in this great inner invisible conflict in your own soul, if the flesh is winning out? Here's the list. It is a list of sins. And if your life is so characterized by these sins that they stand almost entirely unopposed, then Paul's warning is you don't have the Spirit. If they're not opposed, you don't, because there's a conflict if you have the Spirit. So you will not inherit the kingdom. You are not a believer. Now, since the Bible does not talk to us across a canyon about people way over there, but talks to you in your face, we're going to listen carefully to this list of sins, not mainly focused on other people having these sins, but our primary focus is, this is a warning for us about these sins. So yes, a bit of a negative message today, but we make no apology. We let God pick the topics of our sermons, and this is what he's picked. So we're going to look first today at the sins themselves. And then after we've looked at the list of sins, the 15, then we're going to consider the warning that Paul attaches to them. So let's begin here with the sins themselves, all 15 of them that begin halfway through verse 10. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That and things like these is just there to show you this is not an exhaustive list. So if you are dealing with a sin not on this list, there's no relief for you. That's still a sin. It's a thing like these. But Paul can only put so many things on the list. So he gives 15. They're not random. On the one hand, there's a randomness about these 15 things because they're a bunch of different things. Sins you encounter in the world out there and all of them, sins you encounter in your heart in here. But they're listed in what at first appears to be somewhat random. Paul is just throwing them out. They're not necessarily carefully categorized. But 
If you look carefully at the list, as many scholars have done for a long, long time, there does seem to be a grouping of sins here. In other words, when Paul gives one sin, sometimes it sparks in his mind another related sin. So you end up with certain sins related to each other grouped together. You can see that in the passage, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, first three, and they all are very closely related. Same thing happens afterwards. So what we're going to do today, although it's imperfect, but for the sake of order, we're going to consider this list of 15 sins under three headings. Sins of pleasure, sins of pride, and sins of purity. We had to do all three Ps, you know, because they alliterate. But that's what we're going to do. Sins of pleasure, sins of pride, sins of power. So let's begin by looking at what we're going to call sins of pleasure. And there's overlap. Of course, pride is underneath every sin we commit. But sins of pleasure, these are sins that more obviously relate to pleasure. And they start there at the beginning of the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, sexual immorality is just the blanket term that everything else goes underneath. It is an umbrella term, if you will. In this passage, impurity that follows afterward now gives us a picture, a picture of something precious and good that has been contaminated or made dirty. When you're holding something and you drop it into a puddle of mud, now there's an impurity that's been added into there. A sort of dirtiness, which is related, it's retained even in the language we use to talk about sexual sin, that there's a dirtiness to it, that's impurity. And then sensuality actually really has the idea of self-abandonment, of losing reason and not being restrained, which in these kinds of sins, that of course is exactly what happens. So those three are grouped together. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, these kinds of sins, on the one hand, are not complicated. What's being described here is not a complicated thing. Like we said, sin is when you see God's will, what God wants right here, and you go this way. That's sin. If you do this, that's good. That's obedience. If you do this, that's sin. So we speak of deviance and even sexual deviance. It's because there's a good, even within sexuality, a very good thing God has designed. And all of these terms about sexual sin are just going that way. We know from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2 that when God created paradise, the Garden of Eden, he looked at it over and over, and what did he say about it? What did he see about it? He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, and finally, it's very good. And let me ask you, and this is important, when he said, everything I see here is very good, was sexuality there? It was, because in Genesis 2, when we get this full description of God creating mankind, you have Adam and Eve, and God even had given them the command, be fruitful and multiply which involves sexuality. It's by God's design. I want to emphasize this, although maybe for some of us it's awkward to talk about in church especially, but I do want to emphasize that the Bible's teaching is that sexuality is good. 
It was in the garden before the fall. It is healthy. It is holy. It is right. It serves good purposes. It is wonderful. It is not bad. We have to emphasize this because you know, and you've already heard this many times, that within the church, because we're trying to live holy lives, and because Satan uses sexual deviance and temptation to trip us up all the time, sometimes as an overreaction, we as the church have really become, as we're charged with being, prudes. We have just regarded sexuality itself as if it's just a bad, dirty, wrong thing because so much sin is attached to it. But the sexual immorality on this list, notice it's sexual immorality. It's not sexuality. It is immorality. Because within God's will, that includes sexuality in a context of marriage. And it is good, a husband and a wife in marriage with a covenant, sexuality, good, not bad, good. God's will, good. Get that in our heads? Very good. Bad. Bad, 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 good. <laughs> Genesis 2.24, which is before Genesis 3, where the fall happens, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And that is referring as well to sexuality, as Paul tells us in the New Testament. And that's Genesis 2. The view that Satan has created sexuality in order to tempt us and lead us astray, that is a lie. Do not give Satan credit for that. He did not. He doesn't show up till Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, there is healthy, holy, right sexuality merely within the bounds, the fences that God had established for it. We've got to emphasize this. It's important. Because you know that of all the things that you hold to and hold dear to as a Christian, there are some things like the value of loving others that many people around you who do not know Christ also value. And they will respect you for it. But your views on sexuality are not in vogue. Am I right? They are not in vogue. You seem like a remnant of a puritanical past. We had the sexual revolution of the 1970s, so for you to be living now with a view that sexuality is between a male and a female in a covenant of marriage, and that's it? That seems like no freedom. That seems like regressing back to an old foregone time when people oppressed everybody. But our text says sexual immorality, and it simply means anything but this. Anything but sexuality the way that God designed it to be. And if we could just even appeal to human experience, the idea of unrestrained sexuality that our culture very much values, because it promises come this way and there will be freedom, come this way and there will be paradise. This right here, what God wants for sexuality, very limiting. Very, one person in this covenant marriage, very limiting. But come over here where there's big open pastures, freedom to do whatever you want. Even those who walk in that direction, who do not know Christ, if they are honest, can testify it never offers the paradise it promises. It never does. Only in the short term, maybe. But not in the long term. If you go and find people who have 
kind of in keeping with this text, that word sensuality, like I said, it's a self-abandonment. It's losing yourself. If you find people who have dedicated themselves to this sensuality, to this loss of self-restraint, who pursue those open pastures, are those the happiest and most fulfilled people that you know? They're not. Those are the people, and we grieve that it's so, but those are the people who are dealing with things like suicidal thoughts. Those are the people who oftentimes, not always, but often because of conscience, understand what our text calls impurity, who are left with a sense of dirtiness, with a sense of shame. They were promised freedom, and now there's a bondage to the sense of shame. Why? Why is there shame? Why is there the sense of dirtiness? Why, when they're promised freedom and they go that direction, they don't find it? Why? Why is this? Because God's will is good. It's acceptable, and it's perfect. You can't find a more perfect way to live than God's will. This is why we who follow Christ... I know it makes us seem old-fashioned and weird and like we have no fun and we're just boring and stuff like that. I get it. Some of us are boring, but that's a personality thing. That's not related to sin at all. But why is it that we refuse, like everyone else, to go and sit before a very large screen around strangers and watch strangers participate in sexuality outside of marriage? Why do we refuse to do that? Everybody thinks we're so judgmental because we won't do that with them. Because that's a terrible way to live. That's no good. And long term, it doesn't help anybody. And because of Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. When we don't do marriage the way God wants us to, that's sin. But again... As we conclude this little section, I do want to emphasize that it's not because we're prudes who hate life. It's not like that. It's because we actually, as Christians, value sexuality more than unbelievers do. It's not like out there, that's what they're all about, not in here. No, 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 no. What we say is they out there are cheapening something that's precious and good and wonderful. They're cheapening it. They're making it like it's nothing. It's like G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian thinker, once said, quote, Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once, rather than having sexual freedom anywhere, was like complaining that I had only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex out there, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. It's because we value sexuality as God designed it. We love that. It's glorious and good. That therefore we hate all the perversions. In ourselves, in others, we hate those. That's why scripture says to you, Christian, flee from sexual immorality. It tells you don't do the other sins, of course. But when it says flee, it's talking about this. The temptation arises, run away. And of course, Jesus made very clear that this includes not just outward acts of sexual sin, but even in our own hearts, fantasizing, second looks, pornography, all of that. That is not what God designed. That is not what God intended. 
Now, as we're talking about sins of pleasure, there are actually really two more items on this list that could go under that heading, though they're a little bit different. If you go closer to the end of the list, really at the end of the list, drunkenness, orgies. Now, drunkenness, you know, is an overuse of alcohol to the point that you lose your reason, but really it can be a use of any substance meant to dampen your reason, and typically that leads you to terrible behaviors that you later regret. I think that's why orgies, or that's really wild parties, comes right after. Don't those go together? Drunkenness, you lose your reason. Wild parties, do thing, other sins on the list, do things you regret. Those go together. Those also are kinds of sins of pleasure. Now, we don't have time at the moment to go into in detail why substances are abused, and many of us have experienced substance abuse ourselves, dealt with that. For some people, they turn to substances, well, alcohol, drugs, or something else. They turn to those substances to numb bad memories. Or other people may turn to some substances because they deal with anxiety, maybe social anxiety or other forms, and that oh, gives them some relief. Other people turn to these substances and abuse them just for the sake of waking themselves up, a sort of thrill. But we're not going to overcomplicate the matter. We're going to be very simple. It's sin. It's sin. Are addictions to substances incredibly difficult to break? Oh, absolutely. Is there a physical component that makes it even harder? Absolutely. We're not denying that, but let's just speak the way Scripture speaks this morning and say, we need to acknowledge it's sin. Again, we have to affirm that we're talking about fences here, like sexuality. Many in the church have thought because so many people sin with alcohol, alcohol is inherently sinful. In our country, we had prohibition. We made it illegal to buy or sell it. Didn't work out. Alcohol is not inherently sinful, just like sexuality is not. Jesus himself partook of wine. Therefore, it cannot be sinful. Now, there are some of us who choose freely to live a teetotaling life and avoid all alcohol just to make sure we never get to this vice of drunkenness. Because you know that for everyone it's different. And if you drink, that's okay. Don't use it to cause others to stumble. So be respectful of others' consciences. And don't get drunk. That's what Scripture commands. It doesn't say don't drink. It says don't get drunk. But where is that line? May God give you wisdom in that. But see, it's a lot easier for me. And I'm not imposing this on anyone. You don't have to be a teetotaler. You don't have to fully abstain from alcohol. It's not commanded in Scripture. But I don't even have to worry about it. <laughs> so that's kind of one of the benefits of teetotaling. Just to put that little plug in there, I guess. But what's forbidden in this list, again, not alcohol itself, but drunkenness. Your reason is impaired. You do foolish things like wild parties, orgies in this text. That is forbidden. And of course, if the thing in drunkenness that God is prohibiting is the loss of reason leading to other erratic behaviors, this would include other drugs as well, prescription or otherwise. This would include drugs. So these are the sins of pleasure. Now, we need to move on to the next category of sins in this list, which we will call the sins of pride, and these begin with enmity in verse 20. Enmity, strife, jealousy, 
Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Again, we have an umbrella term, enmity. Enmity, let's simplify it, just means the feeling of hatred that you have for someone and they in turn have for you. It's a conflict, but it's really, it's focused on that feeling of hatred. You know the feeling of hatred for someone. Everything else on this list that relates to, I'm calling it pride here because that's the source of it, but everything that has to do with this infighting, everything that follows enmity there up until envy, is just a different angle at looking at enmity. It's a different way of looking at this proud hatefulness toward others. So if you look at strife, that's what happens when you hate people and you act on it. You fight. If you look at jealousy, that's what happens when you hate somebody and they're doing well. You're jealous. You look at fits of anger, that's what happens when you hate somebody and you show it. Rivalries, that's focused on the selfishness in your hatred. You want them hurt and you want to benefit yourself. It's selfish. It's focused here, not on them. And then what's the outcome of that hatefulness toward other people? It is dissensions and divisions. That is, you break into your faction. You find the people who support you and what you want out of life. You get with them. You talk about how bad that group is. You can't stay at a local church because you always break away because people threaten your desire, what you want out of life, so hatred grows. It is really, that's why I call it a sin of pride. It is really at its root, me demanding that the things I want matter more than the things you want. And we're good Christians, so we don't say that. We just act that out. The things I want matter more than the things you want. I can show you this is so from Scripture in James chapter 4, where he literally says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? All right, what is it? Is it not this that your passions or your desires are at war within you? You desire and do not have because they're preventing it, so you murder them. My desires matter more than yours, and if you get in the way of my desires, you're dead. You are out of the way. I'm out of here. Hatred. This is the opposite of what we'll find that heads the list of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, which is where I lay down what I want to support what will benefit you because I love you. This is the very opposite of that. This is pride focused in on itself and its own desires, and when you live a life characterized by folding in upon yourself, holding on to what you want, then you know what follows? All these kinds of conflict. Because people around you just become either stepping stool that you can step on to get what you want, or they become more likely threats, even in the church. Threats to your reputation, if you want a reputation. People around you become threats to your money, if that's what you worship and value. They become threats to comfort and ease. They become threats to your honor, threats to your self-esteem, threats to the way you think of yourself, threats to your future prospects, threats to all these things you love in your pride here. So what do you do? You fight them. You fight them, you hate them. Now I want you to notice two things as we finish these sins of pride category. And one is, did you notice that 
The majority of the items on this list have to do with these kinds of sins of fighting other people. You would think a vice list were Christians. It's all about sexuality. No, that's three of them. And then eight of them are about us, what we do in the church here, where we fight with each other because we're defending our territory. It matters quite a lot. And the second thing is, can't go into it, but in the Greek and somewhat in the English, many of these items are plural. That means they're more than one. So it's not actually enmity. It's enmities. It's not rivalry. It's rivalries. It's just pointing out the fact that if you don't fight against pride in your own heart, it's not like you're going to have one or two conflicts with people. This is going to become your life. Conflicts with everybody all the time who threaten what you want. Briefly now, this third category, which we call sins of power. This is verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery. Now, you might breathe a sigh of relief here because you say, I'm at least clear of those. I don't have a metal image in my home that I bow to or offer food to, and I'm not practicing magic. I'm not Wiccan. I'm not any of that. But if you get to the core of why Christians in the early church were tempted with literal idolatry and with sorcery practiced in the culture around them, you'll realize that the externals have changed and the core has stayed exactly the same. Why would someone in the ancient Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture, who's become a believer be tempted to also worship idols? You've got the one true God. Why you, you can't go do idols? Those are other gods. Why would you be tempted to that? Because what if you're worshiping the one true God and he doesn't give you what you want? What if he brings trials into your life? What if you want prosperity and he's given you poverty? You can keep asking him, but he's a sovereign God, and he hasn't promised that he has to give you prosperity. So, you can take matters into your own hands. You can go find an idol to Zeus, to Demeter, to Aphrodite. You can go find an idol, a different God, and say, hey, my God's not giving me what I want. Maybe you can help me out. That's idolatry. It's always been that way. It's really an attempt at power for myself without the inconvenience of God deciding what happens. I would like to decide. So you, that's why you have lots of idols and lots of gods, because you're appealing to them to do what you want. Can't have children. Let's go to this god of fertility, Aphrodite, and maybe she can help us with this. The same thing applies with sorcery. Yes, you might not have magic books in your home. I'm not talking about Harry Potter here. That's a different discussion, and we don't have time for it. But just right here, legitimate sorcery, trying to do magic apart from God, which was in the ancient world. Even Pharaoh had magicians. Again, it's an attempt at power without God deciding how I use that power. I want the power. I want the potions. I want the magic. I want to say the incantations and the words and do what I want to do. These are sins of power. Not wanting God to regulate. And if you think of it that way, you know the idolatry we are most tempted with today? Jesus spoke of it. You cannot worship both God and the idol known as mammon. It's money. It's money. It's the American dream. It's having the nice vehicles and living in the nice house, which none in itself is wrong. But that becomes, I want that. And what if God doesn't allow you lawful means to have that? Well, there are unlawful means. 
I'll just work too much and neglect my family, and I will get that way of life. I'll just nag my husband until I make sure he gets us that way of life. I will do. I know God doesn't want me to, but I'm kind of putting him out of the picture, and I'm going to do the magic, and I'm going to get the money, because when I've got the money, it is the magic. I can do what I want, when I want. Nobody can stop me. These are sins of power, and seen that way, you know this is a massive temptation for us today. Not a small one, but a massive one. Those are the sins. Those are all 15 of them. Now, as we come to a conclusion, we have to say, why have we been looking at these sins? Why has Paul put them here? Because of the warning that he puts at the end. Look at this warning now, moving from the sins to this warning. I warn you, verse 21 reads, as I warned you before, And as God is warning us again today, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I know we've covered a lot of ground. Your brain's getting tired. Sorry, we're not letting up because there's something that you have to think very carefully about right here. If you don't think carefully about what Paul just said right there, you will undo the entire rest of this letter. Let me give you an example of this when I was younger, when I was in high school, early on, before I knew Christ, I struggled with sins on that list because I was an unbeliever and they dominated my life. And I came to realize what's said right here. Maybe not from this specific passage, but actually because of what's at the beginning of this passage where he says the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. It's obvious it's wrong. And that's what happened in me where it became obvious that my life was characterized by sins on this list. And so although I said I was a Christian, I was not a Christian. He says it. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. I practiced them. I lived in them. They owned me. And so seeing the concept of verse 21, that I will not inherit the kingdom of God, I did something that seemed very rational and logical to me and to most people. I said, if those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, well, it's easy then. I'll just stop doing those things. And then I'll inherit the kingdom of God. We call this salvation by works. You may have heard of it. Paul's written an entire letter of the New Testament fighting against this view. And it is the letter to the Galatians. That is exactly not what you're to think about this. If you are dealing with these and they dominate your life, you go, I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. These are dominating my life. Solution, fight them harder with more grit. And I did. Video games owned me, for example. I took addiction to them like a substance. I put them in a box. I put them in my garage. I said, I'm done. I'm going to inherit the kingdom. It, It lasted one week. That lasted one week. I had no success in anything else either. That is not what this is saying. That is not what this is saying. Justification, inheriting the kingdom of God, happens by faith alone, not by works, not by you doing the sins on this list less. That will not get you to heaven. You cannot earn heaven. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn the kingdom of God in this passage. How then are we supposed to think about what he just said right there? Because it looks like that. Because there's another fully legitimate way to see this, and it's the right way, okay? And it is this. If you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, apart from works, 
You trust in him, which is what eventually I did. Put my faith in Christ alone in desperation. Him. Then he clears the record of all your guilt for your sin. All of these vices that owned me that I had been living in, fully cleared. And he gives you the Holy Spirit who then gives you power to overcome these sins so that these sins will not characterize your life. I know that's hard to think through, but there is a big difference between saying, do these sins less and therefore you'll inherit heaven. That's work salvation. It doesn't work. And saying, listen, you see these sins? They characterize your life? You need to trust in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. Look to Christ. Say, well, I'm looking at the list. I'm going to try to fight this. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to not do that. So stop, stop, stop looking at the list is there to show you, listen, you're bad. You see that? You're bad. Okay. Now look to Christ. He's the solution to you being bad. Trust in him. That's why he died on the cross for these very things and to give you the spirit to overcome these things. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to overcome these. You can't do it. You can't do it. You've got to look to Christ. And when you look to Christ, He changes your heart. You receive the Spirit. Then you fight these sins. And if that happens, you will not be those who do these things. That's the point of the passage. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's just saying unconverted people. People who have not yet trusted in Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Their life will be dominated by sin. So you need to trust in Christ for salvation. If you're here this morning and your life is characterized by these things publicly or privately, that warning is for you. It is telling you, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God like this. If your desires are all just the natural desires, no heart change, no receiving of the Holy Spirit, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But you know what you can do? By God's grace, you can look to Christ right now. You can receive the Holy Spirit right now. You can get a new heart right now. You say, well, what do I got to do? Nothing. Trust in Christ. Look to Christ. It's why he came. He is the only one who never touched any of the 15 items on this list. And you can have his perfect record. And he can take your horrible, guilty, filthy record to the cross and deal with it there. And finally, you who have trusted in Christ... I would encourage you as a final exhortation, let's not be afraid or embarrassed to call these sins by their maiden name. They may be all sorts of other things, issues, problems, I'm struggling, that's one we use a lot, struggling, I've fallen, okay, that's, you can say that, that's fine, that's fine. But please, let's not be afraid or ashamed to just call these things what they are. These things are sin. So long as we make little of our sins and call them other names and make it obscure and it's complicated, you're like a sniper who's trying to look through the scope, but you're so uncertain you will not settle on any object. The Holy Spirit wants to put to death that sin, so you've got to stop and focus on the sin and say, that's a sin. <laughs> See that in me? It's not, yes, that's a sin, but it's, but my wife, it's because you know, when she does, and then I get ink. So yeah, no, 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 no. Listen, see that? And you, you get angry at your spouse? That is a sin. 
Because if you're willing to call it by its name, just like this list right here, that is sin, that is strife, that is enmity, you can put it to death. In fact, that's what God wants to do in your life. Put to death the works of the flesh and produce the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see next week. 